This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Of course, just as the show was ending yesterday, we heard uh, the news that Hamilton's longest-serving mayor, Bob Morrow, uh, passed away at age 71. Let's bring in Larry Deany, former mayor of the city of Hamilton. He is with us now. Larry, thanks for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate this. Well, thank you, Scott. Your thoughts when you heard the news? Well, I was very sad. I, I've got to confess because I've been seeing Bob relatively regularly over the last, um, I would say, year and a half, two years, and I've seen the deterioration in health, so I wasn't entirely shocked, but I was very saddened, and um, the fact that it happened sooner than I, even I had imagined uh, was adding to that sadness. Is there anything you can tell us about uh, his health without getting too personal? Well, you know what, I, I, I did see it firsthand, and he was struggling uh, from a number of perspectives. His son was quoted in the paper as talking about dialysis and, um, and some uh, lung uh, ailments. Um, so I'll confirm that um, and, uh, and leave it at that. But let's say he had challenges, no question. Uh, you spent. You said you spent uh, quite a bit of time with him uh, recently. Tell us about him. Tell him what he. Tell us what he was like beyond the mayor's chair. Well, um, so yeah, we we'd have either coffee or lunch almost on a monthly basis over the last uh, while. Uh, the last time I saw him was before Christmas, um, and um, and he was uh, Bob. You know, he was the quintessential gentleman. Um, loved the city. Uh, kept. Uh, um, certainly aware of uh, proceedings and uh, um, initiatives, was happy to see the renaissance uh, that was occurring. Uh, he felt it was long overdue and uh, and totally deserved. Um, didn't, as I say, have a, an unkind word to say about uh, uh, anyone at all. Uh, he was just a quintessential gentleman and a good guy to spend some time with. And, of course, had a story about all major events that have occurred in Hamilton over the last uh, 20, 25 years, uh, the political ones at least. And, uh, and that was always a pleasure to, you know, get into those, uh, into those weeds and, and just enjoy ourselves from that perspective. Uh, he always had time for you, it appeared. He always had time to share a story about Hamilton with you. He always did, and he had so many stories. Uh, of course, he'd been involved in politics uh, uh, well be before he became mayor, and he was mayor for a long, long time. Uh, and he had an interesting entry into politics uh, where he was actually uh, victorious but then disqualified. His father took over, then he ran again. I don't know how many people remember the, that history. Uh, but um, he knew the characters, he knew the people, he knew the movers and the shakers. Uh, and uh, he loved every part of this city um, and um, and would have wanted to continue beyond amalgamation, but that was not to be. Uh, he resigned himself to that. He did a stint as a, um, as a citizenship uh, court judge, as we know, uh, and uh, comported himself with decorum and grace, uh, discharging those duties, and loved that, loved that as well. I mean, one of the legacies that I think Bob will leave uh, this community is his inclusivity of uh, of uh, different and diverse communities, and he saw the uh, the citizenship uh, 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 court job as just an extension of that, welcoming mm. officially 
um, people into this great country we call Canada that is so welcoming. And he, he enjoyed he enjoyed the pageantry as uh, and symbolism as well as the reality of that. He enjoyed serving. No question. Uh, no question. He saw himself as a, as a leader, yes, but, you know, in, in modern uh, lingo, perhaps you might say as a servant leader. Uh, tragic that he passed so young. That being said, thank goodness at least he saw the, the renaissance of the city. He saw the turnaround. He saw the success. Yes. He, I mean, 71 by today's standard is, is extremely young, and if it wasn't for his illnesses... I'm sure he would have uh, he would have survived even beyond um, uh, that, but you're right. Um, he saw the Renaissance, and in fact, if truth be known, and I've spoken to Mayor Eisenberger about this, and he had, he uh, uh, he certainly agrees with this uh, point of view. Uh, Bob Morrow presided during some very difficult times for our city. Uh, you know, we were part of the Rust Belt uh, uh, in this country when um, industry was leaving, uh, tax base was diminishing, uh, the political uh, economic climate was shifting, and those were very hard days. We, we saw the results of that uh, and still continue to see the results of that today. But he and his council were, um, had enough foresight that they knew that they had to plant some seeds that would see us reemerge from those economic doldrums. And so they started putting in uh, policies um, that, that uh, uh, would, uh, would pay you know, dividends years later, and, and he saw that. So he planted the seeds. Other mayors, myself included, augmented some of those policies. And the Renaissance that we have today certainly had had its birth uh, during the moral during the moral tenure and even when he I was talking with him when he when he was filling in and uh, after the passing of Bernie Morelli and it was as if he didn't even miss a beat no he enjoyed that and and he really appreciated the opportunity uh, was very grateful to Councillor Sam Marula who sort of uh, uh, shepherded uh, that through. Um, it brought him back. It, it provided him with some relevance. Uh, he got to know staff members that uh, he hadn't met um, because they came after his tenure. Uh, and it, it made him current again. And because of that uh, and his great interest in skills, um, we also did a little bit of consulting work together. Um, and, and he was very good at that as well. Uh, and again, if it wasn't for the energy and and the illness uh, that that he had to deal with, um, he would have done more of that. I'm sure. I'm sure. Uh, but in spite of that, whenever he met people or he came to meetings or we just had a a, a private lunch or, or some coffee, he was always upbeat and very stoical about things, and and hopeful. By the way, I mean he was in line for for um, um, a transplant, and and he was looking forward to. To, you know, getting back on his feet uh, 100%. And, you know, considering the, the great and rich history of this city, Larry, it would have been a very difficult time to have led the city and negotiated through those times, wouldn't it have? Well, also because, and, you know, I, I've experienced the, uh, the role as well, uh, 
if there's credit, um, in, uh, politically, it's, it's always shared. Everybody wants a little piece of that credit. But if there's blame, it all goes to the man at the top or the yeah. woman at the top. And, uh, and Bob had to deal with that. I mean, he, I think he was unfairly criticized. Our local pay- paper lambasted him uh, regularly uh, because of what was happening, which was beyond uh, one person's control. And that was unfortunate, but it's part of the territory. I mean, it's, uh, you know, when, when, you, when you're at the top, you, you take the credit and you take the blame. What didn't we know? What don't we know about him as far as his, his personality? Uh, obviously a great pianist, a great piano player. Give us an inside story. Well, no, I think we know him. I think uh, what you saw is what you got. Uh, and yeah. he was a gentleman. He was kind. He, he loved his community. He enjoyed meeting people. Uh, he, everybody's got a story about him. I mean, you can yeah. follow social media as I've been doing uh, since the announcement. Uh, people, uh, you know, talking about uh, little things and uh, mm. personal things that uh, they were touched by when they visited Bob. I, I can tell you, I mean, I've known Bob uh, for generations. Prior to my getting involved politically, the first time I met him, um, it was at an event at St. Anthony's Church where the Italian community was having, I think it may have been St. Anthony's Feast Day or something. But we invited, my parents invited him for lunch on a Sunday afternoon uh. a- after the service, <laughs> and he came. You know, they, they were flabbergasted that he would say yes to uh, a couple of, you know, immigrant people that were not well-known, but he came for lunch, and he was gracious. Uh. And I, I saw him then for the first time as a, a real-life individual rather than somebody in the newspaper or on television or the mayor of the city. He was just a, a real-life individual down to earth. And, you know, the last time I saw him, I described him exactly the same way hmm. he was a good guy what did you learn from him as far as a politician as being a politician what did you learn from him well way? one thing i did not learn from him was longevity uh, in the hmm. job that's for sure uh, but but i i i learned i, I tell you what what the lesson was um uh, for me and and i i like looking at all my predecessors and and those who hold the job because um you know it's interesting to see how different people do the same job but I'd say decorum. In adversity, um, always keep your head high. Uh, show your passion, but try to be logical about the way you go about things. And Bob would lose his temper. And, I mean, there are situations where um, I saw that firsthand, and, and certainly it's been recorded as well. But never did he lose his class. He always had decorum, and that's a good lesson. Uh, nice to see council recognizing him by renaming the city hall forecourt in his honor. Your thoughts? Well, I think that's good. I think we need to do more, quite frankly. I, but I think that's a good start. I'm hoping that over time there will be um, a more public. I mean, let's face it, the, the forecourt as important as it is, it's part of city hall, um, and uh, and it's a nice gesture. But I, I'm hoping that over time there will be a, a more appropriate. Um, a more appropriate uh, gesture. Uh, you know, Pier 4, Four Park, for example, wouldn't exist if it wasn't for Bob Morrow's vision and daring at the time. And wouldn't it be nice if that were Bob Morrow Park? Uh, do you think the passing of Bob Morrow as mayor makes Hamiltonians realize how far the city has come since he was? Um, I'm hoping that as people reflect on his legacy and his tenure, 
that they come to appreciate uh, the, uh, the the legacy of the man and what he did and what he stood for um, in this city. And uh, we'll see him in the um, annals of time as one of the city builders uh, for this great community. Larry Deani has been with us, former mayor of the city of Hamilton. Larry, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Have a great day. You too, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Of course, lots of chatter in and around the Winter Games, of course, as uh, Countdown is on to uh, the big games in South Korea. Uh, North and South Korea have paired up for the Olympics. The northern country has put in place a system to prevent detection. Uh, One political scientist said that if they, the athlete, was chosen to become a member, at least one of their family members must be detained in government control to make sure they don't defect. What is life like for the North Korean athletes at this Olympics. Let's bring in Jack Kim, Senior Advisor, Hand Voice. He is with us now. Jack, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Yeah, no no problem at all. Tell everybody what Hand Voice is. Uh, well, we're a, uh, an advocacy organization that focuses on North Korean human rights and refugees. And uh, we've been around for 10 years, and we uh, try to... Uh, uh, change the minds of uh, Canadians regarding the human rights issues in North Korea, try to open up the fact that it's more than ukes and missiles, and also uh, talk with our government to make sure that these things are are influenced through policy as well. How can North and South Korea merge and pretend to play nice just because it's the Olympics? Is it that easy? Uh, It's not that easy. Uh, I think uh, there there are rumblings, like for instance, the the South Korean women's hockey team, there's some players that were benched, that were removed from the team because of, of this unified team that they're uh, playing. The, the Canadian coach who coaches the, the women's team has been uh, very, very vocal about this. So it's, it's not an easy integration. Uh, there are different systems. Their language could even be different. Uh, the South Koreans use a lot more anglicized words in, in their language as well. So uh, it's, it's not an easy feat. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, there are a whole bunch of other factors, such as security and defections, to also think about as well. Why not have two teams that are separate? Uh, why let North Korea steal the show here? Uh, why not? Okay, if you want to play, you're more than welcome to play, but you're not interfering with our team. Uh, I, I think it, uh, it it reflects the nature of the South Korean government. Uh, if, if you had this two, three years ago when you had a more conservative government in power uh, in, in South Korea, you, you may have had uh, the North Koreans invited, but not had this unified team. Uh, this is more of uh, the hallmark of, of the progressive government that is in place right now, uh, namely because the, the conservative president got turfed through massive protests in South Korea. So the president does feel that he has the the mandate to do something like this, uh, which is uh, more of a sweeping, broader brush. Uh, and and to his credit, uh, it, it is a confidence-building exercise, namely because both the South and North are so far apart on some of the more important issues that are in play that you have to start somewhere. So does this help? Are South Koreans buying in? Because many, you know, they've heard this tune before, have they not? Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's happened in 2000, happened at, the, I think, the Asian Games in 2006 as well. So it has happened before, uh, and uh, the South Koreans uh, are wary. Uh, they, it's, it's like Groundhog Day. <laughs> you wake up and it's mm. the same movie again. Uh, and and, and the, the real test of this is going to come 
right after the Olympics end, namely because the United States is breathing down everyone's throat <laughs> in, in trying to solve this, this this issue. So what happens after the Olympics end? Does does Mike Pence, for instance, is going to the Olympics, does he met, meet with the North Korean counterpart there? Hmm. And what do they talk about? And is there some kind of breakthrough? That's, that's the real prize here. And this is all just a prelim to all that. Um, so uh, do, do South Koreans feel good about sharing their party? I mean, they put an awful lot of work in this, and it seems in the last few weeks, all of a sudden, North Korea comes in and crashes it. Is yeah, that, the, is the, that accurate? Been, yeah, there have been complaints. Uh, I mean, especially in the conservative quarters in, in South Korea, that this is not the Pyeongchang Olympics, it's the Pyongyang Olympics. Hmm. And I think they, they do have valid criticism there. Uh, you, you know, the, the South Koreans have indeed put in a ton of work. I was I was at Pyeongchang I think a few years ago and nothing was there and now it's a huge complex and so the uh, uh, it, it there there are people who are a bit wary of this the the uh, they also recognize that uh, the alternative to ratcheting up tensions especially at this point of time could be war so. Yeah. That's uh, something that they don't want either. So, so they, uh, obviously, a lot of Koreans are, are just biting the bullet and seeing what happens next. So this is more of a compromise in hope that we we don't see any missile launches during uh, or missile tests during this time period. Yeah, exactly. I think it's it's hard for them to do that while their athletes are in Pyeongchang, and also when uh, Mike Pence is is visiting there as well. Uh, will we see Kim Jong Un at all during this? Is this not an opportunity for him? Is he missing it just by sending the team? What are your thoughts with that? Well, Kim Jong Un by by nature is very very reclusive. There's only two foreigners that we know of that he's met with. One of them is a sushi chef from Japan, a former sushi chef of his father, and the other guy is Dennis Rodman. Oh man, I thought you were going to say that. I- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. is that our secret weapon here? Should we be bringing in Dennis Rodman here to help this? Everybody else, sit down and let these two handle it. Oh, well, I mean, uh, people have said that offhand. Uh, Kim Jong Un is known to be a huge fan of the Chicago Bulls, who Dennis Rodman played for under I think two or three championship teams, and so maybe. But uh, Dennis Rodman is, is definitely not the best advocate for uh, for the rest of the world. Uh, on the flip side. Uh, but uh, because he's but so at this reclusive. point, any help is needed. No, <laughs> yeah, maybe, I mean, maybe. I mean, yeah. who else? He's only he's only the second guy to even seen the man. Yeah, yeah, exactly. and, and Dennis Rodman is the one who broke the news to the world that Kim Jong Un even had children. So we didn't uh, even, we didn't even know that. So uh, the, um, he, that's how reclusive he is. I think there's uh, the Leafs will win the Stanley Cup before Kim Jong Un appears at Pyeongchang. Wow. All right. So. Uh, well, you know, that could happen. Some may say sooner than you think. You never yeah. know, Jack. Uh, yeah. So uh, how does this play on both sides of the demilitarized zone? In other words, if you're a North Korean athlete and, and you're coming from home and you're crossing into South Korea, what would that experience be like? And, and you know, I, I'm, I'm afar, you know, trying to, to, to understand this. Yeah. Is it like going to Disney World? What would it be like for these people to come from the north to the south? I, I think for, for most of the North Korean athletes who are coming down to Pyeongchang, they are part of the elite. They are So they've the, seen it. Yeah, they, they know that South Korea is, is, all, is all dazzle, which it is compared to North Korea. And uh, they know that this is the fact that it's open. And I think my, if I was a North Korean athlete, my number one prayer would be, please don't let anyone talk to me. Please don't let anyone talk to me. I don't want to be photographed. I just want to do my job and go home. And, and namely because... Uh, any prospect of defecting or trying to run away causes massive repercussions for your family back home. And they may not be hostages per se, but 
I mean, in North Korea, it's such a close society that they may may as well be, even if they're not incarcerated directly because of this. What and, happens, though, when North Korean athletes head back home and people say, hey, what were the Olympics like? I mean, do they keep it all a secret? Do they say, wow, you guys are really missing out on something? I mean, or are they part of the elite, as you mentioned, so they don't even mix with the others? The, uh, the official line that would probably tell is that uh, South Korea is a capitalist country that's corrupt and bloated by its excesses. Uh, privately, they might go, oh, my God, they have meat every day. <laughs> so, yeah, well, that's yeah. what I was just about to say, but they're not starving. Yeah, so, yeah, but, uh, I mean, the, the, the average North Korean elite family will not have meat every day mm. on, on their dinner table. So it's, um, there, there are different varying degrees of who are part of the elite, and uh, these things do come back, so, which, is, which is a good thing. In, at the, in the long run, where people come back and talk about how good things are on the outside world because uh, they don't get that inside North Korea. Is Kim Jong-un not fearful of that? I mean, is what he's getting on the world stage, does it outweigh any chance of, you know, perhaps his homeland being tarnished by outside sources? Well, there are a couple of things that they're, they're thinking and banking on. The first is that they're able to control the message, uh, even if there are these whispers. Mm. Uh, the elite uh, are highly leveraged. They're given these benefits, and despite the fact that they may think that the rest of the world is living better than them, they're living better than anyone else in North Korea, so right. they may want to keep that. Uh, and then the second is that uh, if, they, if they are caught doing this, it is instant concentration camp for them. And we, when we're talking about concentration camp, we're thinking uh, like Dachau, the gulags in the Soviet yeah. Union. It's that bad. And there, there, there are about eighty to 120,000 people in these camps said for political reasons. So that, that's a huge deterrent to trying to rebel against Kim Jong-un. Do others in North Korea realize that these athletes are, do have uh, an elite lifestyle, that they are not like them? Yeah, I, I, I do think so. I think those, those, those schisms are definitely appearing in North Korea now, where uh, people that have and have nots are certainly uh, becoming much more wider. And, and, it's, it's, and it, it's kind of reminiscent of uh, that whole 99% versus 1% argument that, like, that they had um, in Wall Street and all that a few years ago. I think that's appearing in North Korea. Uh, there is nascent capitalism. Markets are springing up. There are merchants who are making a ton of money, and the regime is rewarding them, uh, trying to get them on their side as well. So when you have it, uh, like the, there are some differences that the North Koreans are, are, are looking at, but it, it's not enough right now to cause any kind of uprising or hmm. anything like that. How difficult is it for a North Korean athlete to go over the wall? What, do, what does North Korean, uh, Korea do to prevent, this, to, to depre- uh, prevent defectors? Well, I, I think they, the first of all, they like an ounce of prevention goes a long way. They they choose people who are part of the elite who have been uh, more or less pampered throughout society, mm-hmm. um, or fed well. Like the North Korean athletes are not sickly uh, human beings. They're, right. they're fed well. They're they're at, at least the, the best they can. And then the second is is the fear. It's the the family back home. Like, uh, you defect, the whole family goes to concentration camp for the rest of their life. So is it true that if you come here uh, or you go to the south for uh, athletic competition, that they will detain a member of the family? Uh, I, I, not always, and I, I I I don't think that's that's often the practice. Uh, namely, but they know where they are. Yeah, exactly. And and <laughs> it's it, it, it's the hardest thing in the world to escape from North Korea. Mm. So if they get you, then it's game over. So people don't even try. 
Uh, is that message sent loud and clear to athletes before they leave? Yeah, I, I think if, if it's not explicit, like it's not a memo, you, you go, your family goes as well, <laughs> the, the, that it's implicit, that they know that these things happen. Um, North Korea is a society that's built upon this fear, the state security police. Uh, think East Germany with the Stasi. Right. Yeah, that, that, and, it's, and then multiply that by 100. So hmm. that, that's North Korea. So it's ingrained in people where, where you're, if you're informing on your parents to the, the state at an early age, yeah, you, you know not to do these things. Right. Yeah, makes sense. So uh, is anybody in North Korea processing the fact that, gee whiz, if someone doesn't come back from South Korea, the family's in trouble, maybe it's better there than it is here, because if it was good here, they'd come back on their own anyway. Does anyone process that, or is this just so ingrained in them that that's what they see? Well, and and yes, the short answer is yes, people are starting to think that way, uh, and it's because we know that there are 30,000 defectors in South Korea in the past you know, 10, 15 years who have managed to escape uh, from North Korea. But the fact is that it's incredibly difficult to do so. The How Chinese, do you escape? So uh, most of them... Um, Go through China, don't they? Yeah, they, well, they try to. Because the Chinese they have this agreement with the North Koreans to send them back. So the Chinese actively search and, and basically destroy uh, refugee trails that are going all the way down to southeast Asia to places like Vietnam and more often Thailand. And at that point in time, if a North Korean makes it to Thailand, then they're, they're okay. Mm. They can go to South Korea. Or, I mean, if, we, if Han Voice does his job, maybe come to Canada. <laughs> right now, there is no route. There's no way that Canadians can bring North Koreans from places like Thailand. But if we do our job, maybe. And, um, but otherwise, yeah, there, there really is no route to escape. So you have to travel literally 3,000 miles to get to freedom. And that, that's an incredibly difficult thing mm. to do because one Chinese stop in, let's say, southern China, which they, they're starting to do now more often than not, it means that you go back to North Korea and you're branded as a traitor. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's tough news for most North Koreans. Um, what's in this for North Korea? What's in this for Kim Jong-un as far as, even, why even bother sending a team? Why even bother sending athletes? I, I, well, I think there's, a, there's two payouts for him. The first is on an international scale. He, he gets to flex his muscles. He, he's doing this all on his own terms. Um, and, you know, the South, as South Koreans look at it, the old Pyongyang Olympics thing comes up to play. Mm. And so he, he gets that dividend. And on the flip side, internally, he's the one who's sending these, these athletes. Remember, he can, he can control the message back home as well. And if the athletes, like, if they're good and they win medals, then it becomes uh, an instant propaganda coup for him. Yeah, they're heroes. Yeah, and if they don't win anything, nobody gets to know about it. <laughs> they don't broadcast <laughs> it at all. So uh, it's, it's a win-win situation for him uh, in, on this front. You give this to him, and hopefully he starts talking about nukes, but uh, we'll have to see about that. So what does everybody, what is everybody in the region anticipating will happen after the Olympics? How long before the next test missile fire? No, yeah, yeah, that, that's a great question. They're working on the, the, the mountain where they test nukes already, and uh, it, 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 the missile, next missile test, who knows? There, there, there is going to be a, a military parade on um, in the next couple of days in Pyongyang where no journalists have been invited and uh, the North Koreans are going to showcase their new military hardware uh, because of that, uh, most people think. So that that could just ratchet things up big time even before the Olympics start. But that being said, uh, the, the big test is we after the Olympics end, and that includes the Paralympics, 
you you sit down with the North Koreans and then start talking about nukes, but um, I call me a skeptic. I don't know if that's going to really do anything at this point. But, uh, you know, who knows? Why, why have the military parade at this time? That's an annual thing, correct? So they do it at this time all the time? Yeah, yeah. And, so uh, they're, yeah. Just, they're just keeping it on schedule. They're not changing it for the Olympics. No, they, yeah, exactly. And, uh, that, does that, that is, matter? Yeah, it does matter because it is, it is provocative. And the fact yeah. that journalists were not invited, that uh, there are going to be mobile missile launchers on display, uh, that's, I think that's, that, that's a show of force. Wow. So, uh, has anybody, has, does anybody, how do these, how does this happen? How, how, who talks to Kim Jong-un and says, hey, do you want to send people to the Olympics? How does that happen? You know what the, the short answer is? We don't know. Uh, and that's the, that's the crazy part about North Korea. And does South Korea have something there that they're not telling us as far as some sort of communication? I, I highly doubt it. Uh, someone's called North Korea the, the biggest intelligence failure in the past <laughs> multiple decades, and I think that's true. We we don't have people inside North Korea, especially on the, on the in, inner sanctum. Uh, we we didn't we didn't even know if Kim Jong Un had children, right? Mm. Dennis Rodman had to tell mm. us that. Mm. So uh, to think that we know where all the missiles are <laughs> and and give them a bloody nose is is also incredible. So we're 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 at a point where we don't too much don't know too much about our adversary, and but w- the things that we do know know are are very scary. And we have to assume the worst. So who's talking to Kim Jong-un? Uh, there are competing theories that there is some kind of Politburo. There is a, uh, uh, a shadow government that Kim Jong-un is just a puppet. Or, uh, and the prevailing theory is that he talks to himself like he, mm. he's the guy calling the shots, uh, which is why he killed his uncle and he killed his brother yeah. at Kuala Lumpur Airport as well. Uh, anybody know if Dennis Rodman's going to the Olympics? I, I, I highly doubt. I think Dennis, Dennis Rahman from the last I heard of in rehab. <laughs> there you go. There'd be a sidebar. Yeah. Uh, Jack Kim is with the senior advisor, Hand Voice, talking about North and South Korea getting together and, of course, putting on a good Olympic front. Jack, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. No problem. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We talked about this, uh, I guess, a little over a week ago. And I remember over the weekend uh, doing some research and stuff and, and looking for stuff for the show for the Monday and, and coming across the article in the Toronto Star that three former employees uh, in the Green Party, staffers, volunteers, what have you, uh, were alleging that uh, Green Party leader Elizabeth May uh, was bullying, was, was, was being volatile, bullying around, allegedly, around the workplace. Uh, and no other media really seemed to pick up on it other than the uh, Toronto Star. And uh, over, the, I was watching the story over the course of the weekend. It kind of petered out. Uh, but then I guess because the Star did react, the Green Party then put out a press release addressing all of this. And that's, for me, where this whole thing went sideways. I mean, you know, obviously we're very sensitive to these allegations right now, and and deservedly so. I mean, it, it's about time that, that action is taken and bad behavior is stopped. But it also has given us all time to, to, to pause and, and reevaluate our own behavior, how we're identifying others and such. And I, I just thought that you know, this allegation not proven, but obviously in the press release, you've got to come out and tell everybody what's going on, but you can't pass judgment. You can't, you can't pass judgment before you know all the facts. 
And, you know, with this story, I'm sure it will uh, run its course and there'll be an investigation and we'll find out what the scenario is and, and whether any of this action is justified or not. And it's great that there is process to let that happen. But I thought the press release from the Green, the Green Party was insulting. I think it was demeaning. It was degrading. And I just and just extremely unprofessional in what it said. Uh, and, you know, talking to other PR experts in a situation like this, you say these allegations are serious. We're looking into it. We'll investigate. We'll brief you on what we find out and move on. You know, put in the line, this behavior is not acceptable, blah, 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 blah. Exactly what we've been hearing for the last several weeks and months. But instead, we get a note from the Green Party that basically says that their leader being a female is held to a different standard than any male is. So that to me is condoning the behavior. It's not denying it. Well, if a guy did it, it would be fine. Since when? What rock have you been under of late? And then ridicules the man who was one of the many and included many females who made allegations, who came forth with allegations and saying that this guy, it was all over a paint job in an office and he's just being a silly man. Really? Isn't that a little smug? I mean, bullying is bad no matter the gender. And considering the climate that everyone is dealing with right now, I believe this press release way off base, incredibly unprofessional and demeaning to the victims or alleged victims. The part of the, uh, the, part of the press release that annoys me Quote, the Green Party believes that as a female political leader, she is being held to a different standard than her male counterparts. A man with these qualities is admired for his leadership. Really? Have you seen the news? A woman is portrayed as overbearing and bullying. These outdated gender stereotypes have no place in 21st century Canada, and it's extremely unlikely that a decade-old antidote about a man's frustration with his office paint job would merit national news. My goodness, this press release reeks, reeks, reeks of outdated gender stereotypes that have no place in the 21st century. This party is old and outdated. They're not needed anymore because everyone is green. And to say that your leader is being held to a different standard than a male in the climate that we're currently living in and then using the outdated gender stereotypes that you say have no place in the 21st century... Unbelievable and just reeks of what's going on in politics today. Totally, totally out of touch. That's the part that got me 
I mean, you know, there's going to be discrepancies around the workplace. It's something we got to get a hold of. It's something we got to get a handle on. It's something that there has to be policies in place to do that. And in the private sector, it's called an HR department. Politicians, there's a different standard, all right, but I don't believe it's any higher. Um, so here is the latest in the Elizabeth May story. In an email to party members yesterday, May wrote that the accusations have cast a shadow on their work and that the party wouldn't be credi- uh, credible without a probe and then solicited for donations to pay for that. If you could manage a donation at this time, it would be greatly appreciated. So is this a Green Party that is a- has absolutely no money? Or are they using these allegations against Elizabeth May as an opportunity to fundraise. You can go back to the blog at 900chml.com and look up uh, Someone Tell Elizabeth May That Bullying is Bad No Matter the Gender. That is my commentary. Uh, And that was dated January 29th, which was the uh, the week after this story broke. Let's bring in Vanessa Bristolin. She is one of the complainants in the allegations made against Elizabeth May, and she is with us now. Vanessa, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Scott, you and I are becoming old friends. (laughs) Yes, it seems that way. (laughs) Uh, So what are your thoughts, uh, Vanessa, on Elizabeth May asking for donations to pay for the investigation into her workplace bullying allegations? What's your first take on that? Well, I, I think it's appalling. Frankly, I mean, <laughs> uh, could you imagine Kent Hare trying to raise money on his allegations? Uh, I it just I to try to raise money because she's been accused of bullying. And the other um, more important question is: Is she prepared to pay the money back if she's found to have been a bully? That was my next question. Whose responsibility is it to pay for such a thing normally? Well, it should be the party who pays for it. And um, I wouldn't say the party are broke. I mean, the amount of money that they've raised is available to anyone who wants to look it up on the Elections Canada website. So why are they using this as an excuse to raise money? Do you think this is about uh, recouping the funds, or do you think they're using this as a vehicle to raise funds this election? I think uh, they are probably using this as a vehicle to raise funds, which is highly unfortunate. And I think also that, uh, I mean, I, I can't speculate, but it may in future be used as an excuse as to why they cannot expand the scope of this investigation, which is one of the things that we have been uh, repeatedly trying to get them to do. Because right now they're insisting that the scope of the investigation, and, and I, you know, I want to start by saying that first of all, Elizabeth May was involved in hiring the invest, deciding who the investigator would be, in the process of hiring the investigator, involved in the scope of the investigation, and determining the costs of that investigation. Um, now, when the, both the Liberal Party and the NDP were asked if Kent Hare or Aaron Weir were involved in any of those decisions, they basically laughed. Hmm. So, obviously, you don't think this is an, an, an independent investigation at all? Well, if it's... I, look, uh, I, I certainly think that um, Sheila Block is a highly respected lawyer. She is above reproach in her field. Uh, she is not a specialist in, her, in uh, employment law. She's not a listed specialist uh, in any of the places where they list uh, lawyers' specialties as, an, as a listed specialist in employment law or in harassment allegations particularly. Uh, when the Liberals and NDP reached out to lawyers to do their investigations, they reached out to people who are defined as specialists in those fields. 
How does all of this play out within the party, especially when it comes to asking for donations to pay this bill? Uh, I think there are a lot of people right now within the Green Party that are, are not happy that they received this email, uh, from what I've been told by people um, or the emails that I've seen. Um, and I know that there are, uh, you know, uh, this. we personally, the complainants, believe that this could be an excuse to uh, not expand the, co- the scope of the investigation, that this email is a precursor to try to tell members, well, we can't afford to expand the scope. Hmm. We can't afford to spend another $20,000 to interview the other four people who have complained or any of the other witnesses or people who have knowledge of those allegations. Uh, you know, to which my response would be, well, then, you know, hire someone who doesn't charge a fortune. Hmm. Are you worried that by the time that this all unfolds, an election coming closer, that this will be swept under the rug uh, and, and justified, and that being justified by, well, we're coming into an election, we can't have this dirty laundry now? I mean, well, we're still quite far from the 2019 election. Yeah. Um, so I, I think certainly the hope is that it will be forgotten by, by election day. Uh, how do you want this to move forward? I mean, do you have, or the others have any say in any of this? Um, We can't determine how the party chooses to uh, form its investigation. We can't choose uh, the level of scope or the number that can can be um, interviewed as part of the investigation. These are all choices that uh, have been had that the party has admittedly admittedly uh, sent us an email saying that these choices were actually determined by Elizabeth May herself. So we, you know, now have gone back to the party and said, look, we are urging you to expand the scope. And uh, look, if you're not willing to expand the scope, then we have to really think about whether we want to be part of an investigation that seems kind of rigged from the beginning. Should she step down while this is going on, or is this is this large enough? Is it big enough to warrant that? Um, I would say that uh, she should look to how the other parties have handled the, this, uh, the same or similar allegations, and in all of those instances, those, uh, the MPs have stepped down from their other duties. So um, if she were to follow suit and what is the norm and what is now being considered the norm, I would say that she should look to what the other parties have done. Uh do you think this will cost? Do we know it will cost? She's got, I've, I've seen quotes here of tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, Has there been an estimate at all or, or sir, so I much mean, tucked away per- for this? Do we know how much? I wouldn't be privy to that information. It's, uh, this is all uh, protected under the solicitor client privilege. The only, the only people who will see the bill from Tories would be the Green Party of Canada. So um, I believe... They would, we would be able to see it maybe, you know, next year as part of their, uh, the claims that they've had to make to Elections Canada is to justify how they've spent their donations. Uh, so at that point in time, it may come out how much it's going to cost, but I, don't, I think it would be a long time before we would find out that information. I would, I would guess that hiring a senior partner at one of the biggest law firms in Canada will not come cheap. Uh, what about the relationship with Tories and the Green Party? Uh, we don't, I mean, we're not certainly not alleging that there was a previous relationship or right. that there's any relationship that we know of, and I, I don't believe that that's really the issue. Mm-hmm. For us, it's far more of Elizabeth May's involvement um, in determining the scope and, and all of the details of her own investigation. Who should do this? Who this, should be, who should this, be uh, organizing this? This should have been uh, a party decision, you know, that was... Uh, 
taken place within the confines of federal council uh, at a meeting in which she was not present, because for her to even be present at this meeting, we believe, is a conflict of interest. This is something that is about her. Uh, you know, this is it's kind of like sitting in on a meeting where you get to determine your own salary. Uh, have more come forward? Usually when one domino falls, the other start. Uh, do we, anything more in, in the weeds? There are four other complainants who ha- were interviewed in the initial story for the Hill Times. So those four people are still out there in existence. They, they would like to come forward as part of this investigation. They were reluctant to give their names. I mean, as you can see, we're kind of the three of us who gave our names are being dragged through the mud. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they didn't, <laughs> didn't want to have to go through all of that, but they certainly have stepped forward to say that they want to be part of the investigation. Uh, and there are other also uh, former federal council members, uh, former shadow cabinet, cabinet members, um, you know, people that who have knowledge of these allegations, people who had seen the, the complaints go into federal council, uh, you know, people who could speak on this topic that are now being excluded as part of the investigation. Um, what are the other gender, like, what is the gender ratio here of the complainants? Because, again, in this initial press release, it made it sound like it was a guy's. What is the ratio guys to girls? Not that that should matter, but do we know? I'd say it's a probably an even split. Right. So, so it's, it's not like it's just guys, it's not like it's just guys saying this. No, and also, I mean, look, I know a lot of people want to make a big issue about this painted room. Uh, you know, the real, the rest of the story was that actually the volunteer that Elizabeth May was threatening to bring back was someone who had thrown a phone at someone's head. So, so what was, the what actual... was, the, what is the story of the painted room that they're making reference to in the press release? And since they brought it up, I'll ask you. Well, the, the, the painted room was part of the story that uh, Diana Nunes, who's the former uh, financial director, was, was giving an example of Elizabeth's behavior. And she was saying that, you know, in this instance, she, she came back and she threw a fit. So she got angry. She yelled and screamed and swore at people. Uh, because of the office paint job? Because, because of the office. Because the office had not been painted. Right. And slammed the door, at, you know, after yelling and screaming and swearing at people. And then threatened to bring in a volunteer who had been violent toward a staff member to paint the, to paint the room. Hmm. <laughs> had been removed from the Green Party office for being violent toward a staff member. So that's the actual rest of the story. Uh, the uh, All this stuff gets ugly when you start hearing stories like this. If, um, what, uh, um... Can you, so where, what happened? Why were you fired? How did you get let go? What's the story of these three that, that have been let go? I mean, because they characterize you guys as sour grapes, disgruntled employees who weren't performing. Well, look, I can tell you that two of those people have signed release forms, uh, which state the reason that they were let go, and poor performance was not the reason. Um, do we know the reasons? Are we allowed to know? I, I can't. Okay. You know, they, yep. you know, they can't disclose, and they, yep. I can't disclose. I don't know. They right. know. Yeah. Uh, they have assured me that poor performance is not the reason, which is why they sent um, that into the Green Party as part of our questions. Like, are we now able to, to breach the terms of our release to tell the real reason that we were let go or what's listed here and show, you, show all of our performance reviews, uh, which are all sort of uh, now secret under the terms of this release, which is actually one of the complaints by many of the people involved, that uh, everyone who has had this issue has had to sign a very strict release, so they can't speak out about these allegations. So why did they say you were let go? Uh, I was let go on the last day of my probation period, so they don't have to give a reason. Right, there you go. But I was let go after I complained about Elizabeth May's behavior, so... There you go. Um, 
where do you think this is going to go? How do you think this is going to play out? Look, Especially I between really now and the next I mean, election. I, I certainly think you're right that there is a double standard happening, but the double standard that's happening is that she's getting really let off easily by yeah. the mainstream media, frankly. you know, Are I you surprised more haven't jumped on this story? And again, for me, it wasn't so much the, the conflict as it was the press release, but are you surprised more haven't jumped on this story? I am surprised. I mean, I think it's... <clears throat> I think, first of all, I don't know if a lot of the media outlets consider the Green Party relevant enough. Yeah. You know, you watch CBC and they say, oh, the three major parties are all facing uh, investigations. Yeah. I just felt like saying to the television, but it's four parties that are facing investigations. Is this party gotten stale, do you think? Well, certainly I think that any other party that continued to only elect one person to Parliament would probably have a leadership change. You know, after 12 years. All right. Vanessa Bristolin has been with us, one of the complainants in the allegations made against Elizabeth May. Uh, Elizabeth May has come out and asked uh, people for donations in order to pay for the ongoing investigation into her alleged behavior. Vanessa, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Keep us abreast of what's going on. Thanks, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.